Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Whether you're planning on being here for the full day or for part of the day, it's just awesome to have you here. So that is, uh, it's wonderful. The hardest part is making the decision to show up. That is the hardest part, just to get your butt here. That's the hardest part. Once upon a time in my life, um, this, this probably comes as no surprise. I used to work out at a CrossFit gym. You can probably tell. I, um, I did. I was, uh, I, I, so at my last parish, there was a bunch of people who worked, at the, out, worked out at this CrossFit gym just right down the road from Communion of Saints. And uh, a bunch of parishioners were there. And a lot of them were just friends of mine. They're like, Father, you got to do this with us. So I reluctantly signed up. I did this thing. And I signed away my life for the next nine months, which was so stupid. Because <laughs> after about uh, two months of doing this, I got hurt. This is how everyone's CrossFit story goes. I got hurt. And then I was a CrossFit philanthropist for the next seven months, just giving them money. And uh, anyway, I did the 5 o'clock, 5 a.m. class. I know. You hold your applause. I know. It's uh, <laughs> the hardest part. The hardest part was, was it wasn't the class. It was not the class. The hardest part was getting out of the bed, down the steps, into the car, out the door, to the gym. That was the hardest part. And then once you were there, I just would get my butt kicked by all the ladies at my parish. And uh, that was also the hardest part. Uh, they were lifting more than me and just destroying me. That's why I got hurt, because I was trying to keep up with them. <clears throat> anyway, enough about that. So you're here. Real quick word about what this day is going to look like. So um, let me just back up. I, I heard when I first got to this parish, when I first arrived in 2020, that, um, that Sacred Heart was known for hosting amazing men's retreat days, like a men's Day of Renewal. Um, obviously, I showed up in the midst of the world ending, and uh, those were just things that weren't happening anymore. So going back a few months, um, the idea occurred to me that when we were thinking about a Lenten, you know, Lenten mission, Lenten speakers, the, kind of, the idea occurred to me, what if we kind of tried to resurrect this sort of men's and women's, Lent, or men's and women's retreat renewal days along with a sort of Lenten mission? So that's where all this came from. So, this is, your, this is your Lenten Parish Mission today. Welcome to your Lenten Parish Mission. Um, it's going to be three talks, three talks throughout the day with two breaks in between. Um, the first break is about 30 minutes. Second break is about 50 minutes. Each talk will be about, uh, give or take, an hour or so. Um, at any point, you, you won't you know, bother me if you get up and move or do whatever you have to do. That's totally fine. If anybody's not familiar with uh, McMahon Hall or Sacred Heart, the men's restrooms are uh, just right over here. Um, also, for your breaks, I, I wanted to give you something to help, kind of help you structure, I don't know, your prayer time and reflection time. So instead of giving you like questions to chew on, we're not going to have any small group table discussions, nothing like that. It's just going to be me talking to you and then you talking with Jesus. That's kind of the whole point of the day. Um, to help you with the talking to Jesus part, uh, there's this uh, sheet here that I put together that just helps it ought, I would hope it would help you kind of enter into that time of prayer. So these will be up on the stage uh, from when we go to our break. Um, the Blessed Sacrament's out of the, the Divine Mercy Chapel, and the Blessed Sacrament's on the main altar of the church. Uh, so throughout the breaks, feel free to go up there and have some time with the Lord. So that's this. 
Okay. Let's talk, let's talk about expectations. <laughs> let's first talk about expectations. And let's start with the, the low expectation, because this is where I usually come into a thing like this. An afternoon renewal, afternoon retreat experience, I usually come in with very low expectations of what really could God possibly do with just a few hours. I mean, like, he's not going to do much, right? And if that's you, I just want to remind you of a little story I like to call the loaves and the fishes, all right? So in that story, right, Jesus takes a, just like next to nothing, and he does something incredible with it. And like, that's what the Lord does. That's what he did with the 12 apostles. That's what he did with the loaves and the fishes. That's what he does over and over and over again. Um, he doesn't need a lot. He just needs openness. He needs our, our willingness to be open. So what's the invitation? It's, in, it's an invitation to a posture of, of, all right, Lord, I'm here. Like, have at it. Have at it. This might be the day that like completely changes everything. You know, that it, might, it might be that. So let's be open to that. Let's be open to that. On the other end of the spectrum, there's the, there's the very high expectation, right? There's the guy who's been doing, you know, I've been doing Exodus 90. I've been fasting. God's going to show up. He's going to heal my wounds. He's going to fix my marriage. He's going to make my in-laws move away. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Fill my bank account, all the graces I've been praying for, right? Like very, very high expectations. And like, like maybe, right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like they might move away. Who knows, you know? Okay, but like, what if instead it's probably more likely that the Lord just wants to give you like an afternoon of rest, like an afternoon where, where nothing's really being asked of you other than just kind of receive, right? An afternoon to reconnect with some really great men, some really great brothers, an afternoon for you to be reminded of how loved you are by the Father. Like, what if that's just quite simply what the Lord wants to give you? So in between those extremes of very high and very low expectations, the Lord's going to do something. He's going to do something that we know. I'm going to start with this image. This is, called, this is a cave um, that's around the seashore of Galilee. It's called the Eremos Cave. It's been venerated by Christians since the first century. This is the view of the Sea of Galilee from that cave, pretty much untouched since the time of Jesus. There's often times in the Gospels where Jesus pulls his disciples away to rest. Come away by yourselves to an empty place and rest a while. I want to refresh you. This is a place where Jesus often went. There's not a lot of naturally occurring caves around the, the Sea of Galilee. This is one of them. It's, it's certain that this is where Jesus rested. This is where he rested with his friends. This is where he took them. So here's my prayer for us, that having made this decision to, to take the time to be here this, this afternoon, that we let our hearts be open. You let your heart be, be touched, that you let your heart be moved, and, and dare I say, softened, softened. When I was uh, preparing for this, I was asking the Lord for uh, a scripture, like, Lord, just draw me into some word that you want to kind of frame this entire day. And he brought me to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 26. If you want to jot any of these things down, by the way, these would be good things to maybe go back to. Ezekiel 36, 26 where the Lord promises, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart. Like this is the promise of the God of Israel. This is the promise of the God of Jesus Christ that I will, like, I will renew you. I will do this. I will transform you like the heart that's been hardened and calcified the heart that's 
become hardened, like I will renew it. That heart that's exhausted, that heart that's frustrated, that heart that like, that feels maybe stuck in a rut. Like I don't know how to get off of this hamster wheel. It's just the same thing every single day, every single week. I don't know how to get access to the life that my heart wants. Like Jesus is saying, God is saying, I'll renew it. The heart that feels desperate, the heart that just feels all of those things. The Lord is saying, I will renew it. Like that's what he promises. Guys, there's, there's some seats up front here if you want a, a, a spot to sit. You gotta be up front. Like, I don't know, Protestants, Protestants sit up front? I don't know. <laughs> this, this here, this whole idea of a new heart, this is the promise of Lent. This is what the Lord wants us to have and experience. Because Christianity, in the final analysis, it's not behavior modification. And Lent is not behavior modification. It's, it's about transformation. Total transformation unto glory. Unto glory. We got this image of Our Lady of Guadalupe right here on the side of the, of the room. I always like having the image of Guadalupe when I'm preaching. Just because she is the image of where this is headed. Right? Mary is not the aberration from the norm. We are the aberration from the norm. <laughs> she is what we are supposed to be, and by God's grace, we will be in glory. Right? This woman who is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a, a crown of stars on her head. This woman who is fully engulfed in divine glory and radiant. Like, that's where this is headed. Like Your humanity that like, aches and hurts when you get up in the morning, right? That humanity that is slowly graying and slowly wrinkling and slowly dying, that humanity will outlive every galaxy. It will be filled with glory. Like, that's where this is headed. It's transformation. It's not just like, how can we hem you in so that you behave well like a good Christian boy? That ain't Christianity. That's something awful that I don't want. But if this is what Christianity is, I, I want that. Okay. Today is about your hearts. Today is about your hearts, and your hearts, my brothers, your hearts are beautiful. Like, the men of this parish are really something. Like, beautiful men. Like, you are incredible men. Like, the fact that you're even taking this afternoon is, is, is incredible. That this parish is filled with some incredible, incredible men with beautiful hearts. And I know some of you even hearing that right now, maybe you're thinking like, I don't know if I want my heart to be beautiful. I want my heart to be like, right? I want to be like a tough man. I want my heart to be a strong heart, a heart of stone, right? Like, and there is, some, there is a correct intuition in that. There's a correct intuition in desiring to be tough and sturdy, right? Because that is at, also at the heart of masculinity, to be strong and powerful, to be protector, provider, strong and sturdy, all of that. That is true and real. That's true and real. But it's an incomplete picture. It's an incomplete picture. I found that most men's ministries focus on this truncated, protracted view of masculinity, of man as warrior, man as protector, provider, hard spiritual warfare kind of thing. Here's the thing. I don't know if you know this. Like, where we're headed, meaning glory, there's no battle. It's done. It's been waged. Like, heaven isn't described as a battlefield. It's described as a wedding feast, which is a very different reality. Yes, spiritual warfare is a real reality, but the battle is trying to figure out how to receive love deeply. That's the battle. That's the battle. 
it incorporates softness, tenderness, all of that side of things, right? Because when you consider, when you consider the language of the body, right? So John Paul II gave the church this theology of the body. He talked about our humanity in a way that was totally, um, well, it was a new articulation for modern ears, but he described humanity using um, this school of philosophy called phenomenology, right? So phenomenology, beginning with Edmund Husserl and other people, um, it was, the whole idea is let the thing speak. What does the thing reveal? What does the thing say? So John Paul II, looking at humanity, looking at our humanity as men, when you let the body speak, the language of the body, when you look at how God has made us, you see that both masculinity, both includes hardness and softness. And if you're wondering right now, is he talking about? Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Right, like right there, where it counts. Masculinity, it combines, it's both the experience of hardness and softness. Are we all on the same page? <laughs> like, boy, I might need some more coffee. Our potency as men is certainly bound up in that hardness, firmness, all of that. But masculinity is not reducible to that dimension. Softness is also a part of our heritage as men, a gift that we have, that we are as men. I have a friend who, uh, he's a cop, he's got a bunch of kids, a um, bunch of them are girls, and uh, I was over at their house one day, I came in, and he was sitting in the family room, he's, you know, he's got, he's got to go into work later that evening, and he's sitting on the floor, and one of his daughters is uh, painting his toenails a lovely shade of pink, right? <laughs> My buddy, who's a cop, right, cop, painted the toenails, beautiful pink, and he had, them, he had, he had to let them dry, right? So they're drying, right? He gets his cup of coffee. He's sitting there sipping coffee. We're talking about things. Toenails are drying. And then he's looking at his watch. He's like, it's time to go to work. So he, coffee down, goes into the bedroom, puts his sock on. Then he puts his foot in a steel-toed boot. And I'm like, none of the guys at work have any idea that beneath that boot, there's pink toenails, right? It's such a powerful image for me. I go back to the image often of this combination of hardness and softness. That, that masculinity is the coming together of firmness, hardness, power, protection, all of that, with tenderness, softness. I mean, like, think about the movies. Think about the movies that most pierce our hearts as men. Like, I'll just speak for myself. The, like, the movies that most pierce my heart as a man, here, here, here's a few, right? Braveheart, right? Fans of Braveheart? Okay, good. William Wallace, crazy warrior, but who is he doing it for? You're not doing it for Scotland, you're doing it for modern, right? This warrior is also what? A lover, right? What makes him a warrior is the fact that he's a lover, right? Or think about Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the Felix Allegiance, right? Husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered son. He's going to have his vengeance this life and the next, right? This man, this gladiator, what does he do? Like, what is motivating him but the love that he had for his wife and his son, right? How about Aragorn, Lord of the Rings, right? The king, battling armies, fighting evil, right? Arise, men of the West. And at the end of the movie... What slays him but his love for Arwen? Or how about this movie? Who's seen Hacksaw Ridge? Here's your homework assignment. During Holy Week, watch 
you're welcome to watch The Passion of the Christ. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But watch Hacksaw Ridge through the lens of the incarnation and the passion of the Christ, Jesus entering into hell to rescue. Desmond Doss, this incredible warrior on the battlefield. But what frames the whole story is the love that pierced him, both of this woman and his faith. There's a, there's a line at the end of uh, Braveheart where Hamish has launched the sword into the battlefield, right? He says, this, these Scotsmen, they fought that day and they won their freedom. They fought like warrior poets. What are you, poets? Warrior, strength, power, poet, lover, soft, tenderness, all of these things, all of these things. Here's my argument, guys. Here's my argument that the, the, the thought that in some ways that we're going to be unpacking throughout the course of this, this afternoon, this day, is precisely it's those things that most tenderize us. Those things uh, in our lives and our hearts that are the soft things, those are the things, one, that Jesus is most interested in, and those are the things that give birth to our greatest power. That if we get in touch with those realities, live out of those realities, we will be authentic men. Our power will be authentically and properly oriented. It's love, it's the poet that orients the warrior. Make sense? This is where we're going. That's a little preview of what we're doing today in some ways. But let's pray. We need to pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you this day. We give you our lives. We give you our hearts. We give you our minds. That this would be a day of renewal. That you want to give us new hearts. You want to soften our hearts. Give us something beautiful. Touch our lives, Lord, today in the concrete Open us in every way. Let us not be afraid of anything that bubbles up. Lord, you are speaking. You are the author of this retreat, that you are moving in our hearts. And so we give this day to you, and we want to go wherever you lead. We want to entrust ourselves to whatever movement you inspire. And we give this entire day, we, we place ourselves within the immaculate womb of Mary, our mother, our queen of heaven and earth, as we pray together as brothers and sons in the Son, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, St. Joseph, St. John the Beloved, St. John Paul the Great, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So we are living through, right now, some pretty crazy times, some pretty unprecedented uh, times. This is an unprecedented age. You, and you hear people say, in response to that, like, yeah, I mean, things, things have been bad before, right? Things have been bad before. Like, don't lose your head. Things have been bad before. We've had, we've had bad popes in the past. We've had bad clergy in the past. We had the Borgia popes. We had, you know, we had popes who made their horses cardinals, for God's sakes. Like, we don't have Pope Francis doing that, right? We've had, we've had bad popes, bad clergy. We've had crazy things happening all throughout the church's history. We had the Arian heresy where nearly all of the hierarchy uh, were just full-fledged heretics, right? So things were very bad before. Things were very bad before. 
And I agree. I absolutely agree. Uh, I don't disagree with that. Things have been very bad before, but things are, and yet things are different. Things are different today. Like we are living in a different and unprecedented age. This is how one author put it. We are dealing with the first culture in history that was once deeply Christian, but that by a slow and thorough process has been consciously ridding itself of its Christian basis. We are therefore not attempting to make converts from pagans. We are attempting to bring back apostates to the church, a different and more difficult challenge. C.S. Lewis put it this way. C.S. Lewis once described this difference as that between a man wooing a maiden and a man wooing a cynical divorcee back to her previous marriage. This situation is made yet more complex in that many who have abandoned Christianity and have embraced an entirely different understanding of the world still call themselves Christian. It's a very strange time we're living in. A very strange time. It's not just an age of change. It's a, it's a change of the ages. Um, this is what we're living through. We are living in a time that's not merely indifferent to Christianity, not merely tolerant of Christianity, but in many sectors, and increasingly so, it's aggressively hostile to it. We are entering into like, what the catechism describes as this final age of the church, this, this age of tribulation that the church must face. This is not me making it up. This comes right out of the catechism. The church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover, when she will follow her Lord in his death and resurrection. The kingdom will be fulfilled then, not by a historic triumph of the church through a progressive ascendancy. Pause there. This is what I think many people think, that we're going we're gonna to recapture it, and we're going to just be like back on this trajectory, flying our way up to glory. It's not going to be through a progressive ascendancy, but only by God's victory over the final unleashing of evil, which will cause his bride to come down from heaven. God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take take the form of the last judgment after the final cosmic upheaval of this passing world. This is one of those quotes of the catechism. You're like, oh boy, right? Like, is Father Mike Schmidt's going to talk about this one? I don't know, right? <laughs> so you're just going to be like, yada, yada, yada. Hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's true, though. It, this is true that the, that the church, we will go the way of our head, right? Christ is the head. We are the body. The head will go the way of the body. The head was crucified, died, and was buried. There will come a time where the church looks like she's crucified, dead, and buried. But give it three days, right? Give it three days. Let's watch this. We are fighting an enemy right here. But to win a war, we have to know who the real enemy is, and we have to know the proper tactics for winning the battle with that type of enemy. Garden of Gethsemane. We read that the soldiers came with clubs and weapons. Battle's about to happen. And the way these people are fighting it is with clubs and weapons. Peter takes out his sword. So this is how we fight. You're not taking him away. I'm going to make sure you know. Put away your sword. Put away your sword. As if Jesus is saying, this is a different kind of battle. If you fight it on these terms, you will lose. I believe Jesus is saying to Peter, this is a battle of a different kind. Watch what I'm going to do. Watch how I win this. 
We are fighting not flesh and blood, we are fighting principalities and powers who want the destruction of the Catholic Church. And the way you destroy the Catholic Church is by taking out the domestic church, which is the family. The way you take out the domestic church is by destroying sexual fidelity. The way you destroy sexual fidelity is with contraception, abortion, and pornography. This is the world we're in, right? But we know who wins. Jesus wins. His church will win. How will his church win? Same way Jesus won. The church must pass through the same horror that Jesus went through, and the church will in some way die. How? I don't know. The church will die, because she will go the way of her Savior. It will be mocked. It will be spat upon. It will be crucified. It will die. We have to be men and women who are willing to learn how to fight as Jesus fought, and that it's going to look very different than we think. It's going to look like defeat. For a short time, it will look like defeat. And when it is as black as black can be, give it three days and wait to see what happens. Do not misunderstand this as passivity. This is active holiness. It's learning how to really go the whole way with Jesus to Calvary, to the descent into hell, and from there to glory. Are we willing to walk through that with Jesus? That's the only way. It's not passivity. It's, it's active holiness. When you look at when God unsheathed the weapon who is Jesus, and you see how did he fight? He, on the cross, he fought in complete vulnerability. He allowed himself to be pierced. It was a war of the heart. That's the battle. That's the battle. That is the battle. What is the enemy trying to accomplish? He's trying to destroy the church, which is the only lifeboat that there is on this sea of this fallen world. Like, and he's trying to maximize suffering. That's, that's what the enemy wants, to maximize suffering and destruction and devastation. And how, as he said, by destroying the domestic church. And what is the domestic church? The family. He's going after the family. How do you destroy the domestic church? The family. You go after the union that builds the family, which is marriage. You go after the hearts of men. This is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. The basic cell of society, right, is the family. And the nucleus of that cell is the married couple. You treat cancer on the cellular level. If you're going to treat the cancer of our society, you have to treat it on the cellular level. The radiation and chemotherapy needed is aimed at your heart. It's aimed at your heart. The married couple is the nucleus of the cell. And within, within the taxonomy of marriage, there is a hierarchy of things. Despite what the culture might say, there is a hierarchy of things. We're going to do a little bit of uh, etymology here, which should come as no surprise for those of you who've ever heard me preach. A little etymology about the words male and female, right? The word in Hebrew for male is zakar. Zakar. The word for female in Hebrew is nekeba. Zakar and nekeba. These are not so much nouns as they are, um, they're, they're verbs. He made them zakar, meaning active. And he made her nekeba, meaning receptive. When 
like the language of Genesis, when he's, God's talking about the, our creation as male and female, he's describing us as active and receptive. Zakar, nekeba. And in Hebrew, words don't have vowels. So there's like word families. There's word clusters and associations. So the word zakar is related to the word zikaron, which means to remember. So masculinity, activity, the male, is the one who is called to remember. Remember what? Remember who you are, who you are called to be. You are called to be a living image of the goodness, the trustworthy love of the Father. You're called to be an image of the Father. And nikheva is related to negaba, which means to open. When he remembers who he's called to be and lives out of that identity, she necessarily, she will do what? She will open in every sense of the term. But when he forgets who he is and what his mission is and what he's called to be, what will she do? She will close. She will close. And this is what the enemy wants. This is what the enemy wants. Barren wombs, barren marriages, barren churches, barren creation. He wants barrenness, right? We say of the Holy Spirit, he's the Lord and giver of life. life. The enemy wants death. He wants death. Wherever God intends life, the enemy wants death. Wherever God intends order, he wants disorder. This is the story. Look, I know many of us in this room are, are married. I know, uh, I, I think probably some of you maybe are widowers. I know we've got some men probably who are divorced. Some of you are on the front nine of your fatherhood. Some of you are on the back nine of your fatherhood. Some of you are grandfathers. Maybe we've got dads who are adoptive fathers. We've got the whole spectrum in here. We've got men who aren't even married, who aren't even fathers. doesn't matter. Fatherhood, fatherhood is the perfection of manhood. Fatherhood is the perfection of manhood, being one who gives life, right? Just as motherhood is a perfection of femininity, being one who receives, conceives, nurtures life. Even if you're never married, like all of you refer to me as what? Father bad, right? Is that just a pity? Well, he's not married, he doesn't have kids. Let's just call him father, right? He doesn't even know, right? No. Every man, by virtue of our masculinity, is called to relive an image on earth, the very fatherhood of God, whether in natural fatherhood or spiritual fatherhood. Every man is called to fatherhood. Fatherhood is the perfection of manhood. Like our, as men, our potency, our potency is a earthly sign of God's omnipotency, right? There's only one adjective used in the creed to describe God. I believe in God, the Father what? Almighty, omnipotentia. I believe in the God, the Father, all potent. Our earthly potency testifies to the eternal fatherhood of God. That's what, it, that's what this is about. It's my, it's my firm conviction that the crisis at the heart of our modern world, it is a crisis of masculinity. It's a crisis of masculinity. It's a, it's a fatherhood crisis. And we poo-poo these things, right? We say things like, you know, he's got, father, he's got daddy issues, or she's got daddy issues. Look, guys, Christianity is Jesus correcting our daddy issues. <laughs> That's what it is. Gaudi met Spes. Jesus, by, the, by revealing the Father, reveals man to himself. 
Jesus has come to reveal the authentic face of the Father. Why? Because we have daddy issues. We don't know who the Father is. We don't know who the Father is. All of Christianity is this, in some ways. This is not just me just making this up. This is, I mean, it's always good to have a Pope quote you, or you can quote a quote, quote a Pope. Pope John Paul II is not only the violation of a positive command, but attempts to abolish fatherhood, destroying its rays which permeate the created world, placing in doubt the truth about God who is love, and leaving man with only a sense of the master-slave relationship. The master-slave relationship. Original sin, he says, it's an attack, it's an affront on the very notion of fatherhood, on God's fatherhood. His fatherhood, which is unbelievable generosity. I am nothing but self-giving love. I want to give you everything. And here John Paul II is saying that original sin attempts to cast that in doubt, which leaves us in this position of thinking that he is the master, we are the slave. That, that right there, like the enemy has been so successful. He's been so, we don't have to look very far to see how he's been so successful in this project of attacking masculinity, undermining masculinity, warping masculinity. What do you hear about masculinity from the culture today? It's described as what? Toxic. That this is the notion of the culture. The toxic masculinity is masculinity. Back to hell, you lie. That there's something existentially wrong with being a man. You know, the, the whole movement of feminism, second wave feminism, thinking of people like Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, Gloria, you know, Phyllis, Phyllis Schlafly, like those folks, second wave feminists. The movement of feminism within the culture it had this sort of two-pronged goal, this sort of two-pronged approach, this, one, this desire to the inversion of God's design, which destroys both men and women. Feminism attacks, it undermines both men and women. How so? Like, what does feminism say to women? It says, you want to be successful, you want to succeed? You got to be like a man. You have to be like a man. You, you want to be powerful, successful, taken seriously? You got to be like a man. You need to work like a man, think like a man, compete like a man, have sex like a man, all of those things. All of those things. The ultimate like a man is the destruction of fertility and motherhood. Which is why feminism is like baked into it is the contraception and abortion industries. You cannot have feminism without those. Because it's the destruction of motherhood. It's the destruction of motherhood. And then what does feminism say to men? Being a man is terrible. And yet they look at women and say, you have to be like a man. But being a man is terrible if you are a man. Right? It's the worst thing possible. You've already, you're already guilty. You're already, you've already committed the ultimate sin by being a man, especially if you're white or Christian. So we're all terrible. <laughs> you need to change and become more feminine, feminized. Okay, why am I going all this doom and gloom? <laughs> this is a great way to start this talk, right? Only to say this, my brothers, like you are so needed. You are so needed. Your masculinity is a gift. It is powerful. Like, and it doesn't matter how, how far your reach is, how big your influence is. God has planted you somewhere within creation, and he's inviting you in particular to, to witness to his fatherhood, to be an image of his love in this world. 
It doesn't matter how big your scope is. Wherever you're planted, you're meant to be powerful there. You're meant to be life-giving there. Only a man can testify to the eternal fatherhood of God. That's why there's a man on the cross and a woman beneath the cross. This is why only men can be priests. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Take a sip of water. How are we doing? We doing okay? All right. All right, listen to this. little Fulton Sheen for us. There is a famine abroad on the earth. I should read like Fulton Sheen. There is a famine abroad on the earth. A famine not of bread, for we have had too much of that. And our luxury has made us forget God. A famine not of gold, for the glitter of so much of that has blinded us to the meaning of the twinkle of the stars. But a famine of a more serious kind, and one which threatens nearly every country in the world. The famine of really great men. In other words, the world today is suffering from a terrible nemesis of mediocrity. We are dying of our ordinariness. We are perishing from our pettiness. The world's greatest need is great men. Someone who will understand that there is no greater conquest than the victory over oneself. Someone who will realize that the real worth is achieved not so much in activity but as in silence. Someone who will seek the kingdom of God and his justice and put into actual practice the law that it is only by dying to the life of the body that we ever live to the life of the spirit. Someone who will be brave, someone who will brave the taunts of a good Friday to win the joy of an Easter Sunday, who will, like a lightning flash, burn away the bonds of feeble interest which tie down our energies to the world, who with a fearless voice like John the Baptist will arouse our enfeebled nature out of the sleek dream of unheroic repose, who will gain victories not by stepping down from the cross and compromising with the world, but who will suffer in order to conquer the world. In a word, in a word, what we need are saints, for saints are the truly great men. Can I get an amen? amen. Saints are the truly great men. Now, more, than, more so than ever before, the church and the world, this parish, needs men to be radically all in for Jesus like, and to hunger for sanctity. Like, that has got to be our focus, to be committed and authentic and sold-out disciples of Jesus. But I'm not going to lie that it's hard for men to want this. It's hard for men to pursue this. It's hard for men to set our sights on this for a lot of reasons. For starters, one, you lead incredibly busy lives. Like, it's true. I get it. I see it. I hear it in the confessional. I know it. We lead incredibly busy lives. There's so much demanded of you, both on the family front and work front and this and this and da 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 da, da. There's so much. Is there really time for this? That's the first struggle. That's the first struggle. And the other struggle, and this is deeper, why is this hard for men? Because the church gives the message that church, in some ways, is for women. You get unconsciously, subconsciously, the church often feels and sounds weak and effeminate. I'll be the first to admit it. It appears like it's the domain of women. The vast majority of church employees are women. The vast majority of Catholic school teachers, women. The vast majority of people who come to mass, not so much here. I'll be honest about that. And that's why you guys are amazing. But throughout the diocese, throughout the church, the vast majority of mass attendees are women. Why is that? 
that's complex. That's too much for this afternoon to go into. There's a place for the feminine genius in the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not discrediting that. But the church used to be very clearly the Ecclesia Militans, the church on the march, the militant church, not fighting with weapons of the world, but fighting the essential battles which are spirit and principalities. Think of the way the churches used to be architecturally designed. Like the, t- the nave, right? Where's the word nave come from? Or the word navy? It comes from the word nave. It's like the idea of a ship. The church was seen as this war ship that was doing what? Worshipping, right? That was the idea. And as men, like you guys, my brothers, you get this, you know this. When men hanging out are hanging out together, the thing, like, Imagine this. Imagine if you came down here this afternoon, instead of like tables and chairs like this, imagine if there was just a bunch of chairs in a big circle. How, just how would you feel? You're like, where's the exit, right? Like, that's not how we relate. That's not how we relate. We relate as men shoulder to shoulder facing in the same direction. We started building churches in the round where we could see each other and hear each other singing, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, I don't want to do any of this anymore. And then you bring in the certain songs and a certain style of music, and it's just like, are we battling? Are we, what are we doing? What is going on? So from the church, you get the impression in some ways that, that, that this isn't really manly. This isn't worth my manhood. It's not worthy of my manhood. And, and from the culture, from the world, we're given a distorted or, like I said, incomplete vision of masculinity, a very distorted vision. Too many boys, too many boys have grown up thinking, and too many young men right now are thinking, that to be a man is to be hard and objective only, unemotional, unaffected by others. You don't show weakness, don't show emotions, don't do any of those those things. You don't talk about what's inside of you. You keep it in. You deal with what you got to deal with. You don't let anybody see it. You don't cry. For the love of God, don't cry. You deal with what you got to deal with. You cope. You man up in a certain way. There's a truth to that, but it's also a distortion. This, that kind of formation, what that ends up doing is it trains men to be impervious. It trains us to be allergic to vulnerability. It trains us to be impervious, walled off, incapable of, in the end, incapable of actually giving or receiving love which is the only thing you're here to learn how to do, to give and receive love. That's a problem. Here's another thing. On an even deeper level, something that makes it difficult for men to really pursue this. This is not something we often hear. God made our masculinity, God made us to be the ones who image the Father. As I said a moment ago, only a man can testify to the eternal fatherhood of God. He has carved this into our very bodies, right? God who, in his creation of Adam, right, Sistine Chapel, God here on the right, look at how God is stretching and straining. Look at the power in God's hand, right? God who is the creator, the initiator, the one who gives the gift of creation, the one who gives the gift of redemption, Right? In God, there is this dynamic of, of out there, active, initiating. Right? 
God who goes forth from himself to pour forth the gift of life. And he has written that reality into our very bodies as men. Like as men, the gift of life goes forth from our body into another body. Everything about us, from our brain cells to our sperm cells to the way that our circulatory and muscular systems all work, it's, it's, it's designed for out-there-ness. We, we incarnate the active, initiating, outward nature of God. And yet, we as men, as creatures, we are part of the bride of Christ. Like when you were baptized, you were incorporated into the bride of Christ. So as a man, what you have to learn, while you image the Father, you have to learn how to receive, which is the essence of the feminine genius. It's the essence of femininity, receptivity. That men, to be perfected, we have to learn what comes naturally to women, which is another way of saying we have to learn how to receive deeply. We have to learn how to receive deeply. Do you see the essence of this struggle? right here. Like, you are part of the bride of Christ, which does not mean that you have to put on a dress or that you have to be feminized or feminized. Like, none of, that's not the imagery. That's not the imagery. Like, in the tradition, we refer to Jesus as the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. The church is his bride. You read the mystical writings, the poetry of St. John of the Cross, a mystic and doctor of the church, over and over and over again, it's the imagery of bridegroom and bride. And if this, that imagery makes you uncomfortable, I get it. It takes a lot of time, a lot of healing, a lot of journeying to untwist some of the distorted notions of what this means. If that imagery is uncomfortable, let's try this image on for a size. Right? If Jesus is the quarterback, you are the what? The receiver. And what's the job of the receiver? To get wide open. Wide open. What's that? Now I get it. There you go. <laughs> Why should you say that, John of the Cross? <laughs> you have to get wide open. Think about this. What do you really think caused Zacchaeus to come down out of that tree when Jesus was looking at him? It was, it was what was moving in his heart because of the way that Jesus was looking at him. It was something that moved in him. Like, what do you really think caused Andrew, James, and John, and Simon to drop their nets and follow Jesus? It was the way that he looked at them. It was a movement of the heart. It was a heart reality. It was a heart reality. Like, for those of you who are married, what got you to go down on one knee to propose to your bride and say, will you spend the rest of your life with me? Like, I would like to think, as a celibate, I would like to think it wasn't, well, just, you know, I looked at the numbers and it just makes sense, you know? Like, because <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> I'd like to think that it's something that happened in your heart, that once upon a time, someone pierced your heart so deeply that springing forth from that was this thing that said, I want to I give you everything. I want to give you my entire life. Everything that I have, I want to give to you. Something happened to your heart. Something has to happen to our hearts. For masculinity to flourish, we must be vulnerable and receptive. Vulnerability and receptivity are essential 
for becoming powerful men. Essential. We tend to be allergic to vulnerability. So why most men's groups and men's gatherings, especially, you know, with the church, there's usually, there's usually uh, like some sort of sport involved or alcohol involved. <laughs> we got none of those things today. We got coffee. Because what, what does alcohol do? It gives, this, it gives this semblance of vulnerability. It brings some walls down. That's why you can stand in a circle with other guys holding a beer. Imagine just standing in a circle with other guys just not holding anything. <laughs> Be like, is this, is this guy a serial killer? Like, what, what's wrong with this guy? Our hearts tend to be allergic to vulnerability and tend to be closed off. Sometimes, though, things break in, things break through. I want to tell you a story, speaking of sports. So when I was in seminary, we used to have these awesome Super Bowl parties. And... Uh, Great food, great wings, awesome beer. It's just a great time. And we have this huge TV down in the, this area in the seminary called the Cask and the Cross. It was a great lounge. And anyway, so you picture this, you know, 80 seminarians, these guys all studying for the priesthood, down in the lounge watching football, commercials going, you know, great. I don't even remember what the game was. But you got the commercials, you got cars exploding. Next commercial, you got like Kim Kardashian wearing nothing. And then, you know, Pepsi, right? Or who knows? But then... Out of nowhere, this commercial comes on. Let's see if any of you remember this. Daddy. 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 So this is what happened. Everyone's moving about. This commercial comes on. And I'm not joking. It's like the room froze. Like all 80 of us just like froze, like mid-bite. Watch this commercial. You could hear a pin drop. And then it ended. And it was like, like oh, I got to go get another beer. Oh my god. <laughs> like, like, no, but it's like, what just happened to us. Like here we are, these 80 guys, all studying for the priesthood, studying to be spiritual fathers. This commercial comes on, only one word is spoken over and over and over again. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Pierced to the heart. Pierced. Something beautiful really broke in. And it was like guys got in touch with this deep thing, this deep longing. This deep longing. This is, what, uh, this is what we're supposed to look like in some ways as men before the love of God. Anybody know what this is from, by the way? Shawshank Redemption, yeah. Andy Dufresne crawls through the, was it five miles of shit? Who knows what it is, right? He crawls through it, and then he just uh, totally open 
soaked, saturated, receptive, vulnerable to the love of God. And yet this is, I think, how most Catholic men experience their faith. Kind of impervious to the grace that's flowing. Like we have to become, and it probably won't happen in a course of an afternoon like today, but we have to become men who bring our hearts before God the Father to receive the Holy Spirit again and again and again and again. Like you, I want you, I want us as men to get to the point where like we say, I cannot live today on the graces of yesterday. Like I can't live today coasting on the fumes of yesterday's grace. I need, I need it afresh today, Father. I need you to tell me again today. I need to experience being loved by you again today. I need to participate in your love for me today. If I'm going to stand a chance in carrying out the mission that you've given me, like how can I give what I have not received? How can I be an image of the Father if I do not let myself be loved by the Father? How can I be what I do not see? How can I speak what I've never heard spoken to me? I have to receive again today, every single time, fresh love from my Father fresh love from God. No leftover graces. There's no Tupperware containers in our hearts. It's all fresh. It has to be fresh every single day. Every single day. Every single day. And this brings us back to what I said at the very beginning, that we need to experience softness of heart, intimacy with Jesus. Hopefully you can already tell this is not going to be your typical men's retreat where it's like, be a man, protector, provider, pray your rosary, pray your rosary. But it's so much more than that. The battle is real. The battle is real, but the battle is in your heart and for your heart. The only thing the enemy is interested in all day long is to keep you from your heart. Because your heart is the most powerful part of you. It's a heart that changed the world. It's a heart that, that redeemed the world. It's men of heart that change things. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay towards the end of his career called The Abolition of Man. And in that essay, there's a, the last section is called Men Without Chess. In other words, men without heart. We have to become men of heart. The enemy is trying with everything. He's aiming all of his demonic fury at your heart. He doesn't want you to have a heart that's opened and pierced. So first principles, our hearts as men need to be rooted in the heart of the Father. It's a way of saying deep intimacy with Jesus, deep intimacy with the Father, and openness to the Spirit, right? So as we close this conference this afternoon, I just want us to, um, I want to show you one more clip. One more clip, and then uh, what we're going to do is you are welcome to stay down here. I would really, though, encourage you to, to take one of these sheets of paper, excuse me, up here, head up into the church, spread out. I'll put a little soft music on. And uh, I'd like you to spend about a half hour or so. We're going to have the second conference at 135 down here. Um, but I really want you to unpack this stuff with the Lord. One more clip and powerful. It's another commercial. I'm telling you, those, those marketing agencies, they can tell the gospel better than, than most preachers. Anyway, it's an image of profound intimacy and profound vulnerability. There is just so much heart in this. So we're going to watch this. We're not going to have any formal clothes. Just go forth from here, okay? Good morning, sir. 
Ready to get up? Let me get your feet up. How you doing today? Okay. Good morning. <laughs> I remember uh, always looking at my dad's arms like when I was like eight, nine, ten years old. He had arms like Popeye. He was a tugboat captain, and I so admired his physique. And now it's, it's a different story, you know? And that's just the way it is. So my dad had a stroke, and now he can't get around, he can't walk. And he needs me to help him out. And my son Luke and I have been doing it. And uh, I'd do anything, anything for him. I can give you a really good mohawk. <laughs> you look like a punk rocker. There's a definite role reversal that happens. I have to wake him up in the morning and uh, take care of him and groom him and shave him and shower him. It's, it's actually an honor to do that for your father because he did it for me when I was a kid. My dad's got the greatest face. His squishy face is just amazing. He's sort of thin-skinned and I don't want to cut it at all. So I got to be careful with that, with that face. Like he'll just say, do this, do that. You got to make sure that you shave my neck down. You got to do my, my lips up. He was really particular about his sideburns. That's where your sideburns start? Okay. I'm not going to touch your sideburns. Okay, good. Okay. How am I doing so far, Dad? Okay. You know, it takes me like a half an hour to shave my father because I have to be so careful. Definitely without reason. Okay, I will, I will, I will, I will. Oh, there we go. Okay, good. Love that face. Hi. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm one of the lucky ones. A lot of my a lot of my my friends my age did not have their dads, and I still have my dad. He always says to me, he he looks up at me after I pour love on him for the whole day, and he says, I don't know what I did to deserve you. And I say, Dad, I got you. I got you, Dad.